you pray with me? Father, as we just sang, the great of the earth are less than dust. I have no words to speak, no insights to offer, because what could dust say to dust? And yet, as we saw in the words of your prophet Ezekiel, as we were reminded of the absurdity of the task that you have called the church to, to stand in a graveyard and call bones to rise up, to grow flesh, to call on the winds to become the breath of life. We are reminded that you are sovereign. That you are the creator of all things. That you alone have life in yourself. And so this morning, we need to hear the voice of Jesus because we do not simply need comfort. We do not simply need rest. We do not simply need joy. We need life. And only his voice can call us out of death and into life. Come and speak to us this morning. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, uh, we're continuing a series in the book of Ephesians that we're calling Practice Resurrection. And so we've been looking at this letter uh, for a few weeks now, and we're going to continue, obviously, this morning. And uh, so I wanted to just start by by kind of calling us all back to a good time, to, to a time of just 
unprecedented promise. Do you remember when The Matrix was a good movie? <laughs> remember before the other two-thirds of that trilogy, when it, when it just seemed like, man, this, this is maybe one of the greatest movies that, that ever had been made, right? And do you remember the trailer? How it just left you with all of these questions. You couldn't figure out what was going to happen. The trailer told us that, that all the things that we take for granted about life, going to work, paying bills, going to parties, are simply a covering for our slavery. And we see in that trailer that Neo, the main character, meets this mysterious man named Morpheus. And Morpheus asks Neo to take a step of faith, to trust that perhaps there is more to life than meets the eye, that everything that he thought was real is in fact not. And he says to him, have you ever had a dream that was so real, Neo? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? And Neo, who, if you haven't seen the movie, is played by Keanu Reeves, who just has this uncanny ability to sound unimpressed and confused in every movie. He says, what is the Matrix? He was a great casting choice because we're all, you know, so befuddled. What is the Matrix, we ask? And Morpheus says, it's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth that you are a slave born into a prison. Now, in our passage, St. Paul has just finished giving the Ephesian church a stunning description of the grand vistas of God's power that are on display in Christ's death and resurrection. We looked at that last week when he, he just stumbles over himself telling them of the deep, mysterious wisdom of God, choosing from eternity past that this would be his mission in the world to save his people in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, and that his power has never been more fully on display than in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's here that Paul asks the Ephesians to take a look. And what we're going to do this morning is to look along with them. We're going to look back at a grim situation. We're going to look around at a great salvation, and we're going to look ahead to a growing seed. When Paul tells the Ephesians to look back at the grim situation they were in, he essentially is telling them what Morpheus told Neo. All the things that you thought made up your life were actually nothing more than death, and your entire idea of freedom is an apparition. Paul is asking this Christian community to look back with clear vision of what their life really was like before it collided with the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection. And it's important to note the timing of events because he has to tell them this after they've been brought from death to life because dead people have a hard time hearing, let alone hearing that they're dead. We've got to take some time, though, to think about the words that Paul uses in this passage because he's written about this sort of thing elsewhere. And in fact, in his letter to the Romans, he took about four chapters to spell out what he says here in one or two verses. So his language is really dense and it's very intentional. When he tells the Ephesians that they were dead in their transgressions and sins, he is pointing to the entire Gentile race. He sets up two personal pronouns in this, in this section. And the first one is you, and he's talking about the Gentiles. But then later he says we, even the Jews, even the people that have been given the law of God, were just as dead. But he tells them that all of those that had remained outside the promise to Abraham, outside the ritual of the temple and sacrificial system in the law of Moses, had been dead in transgressions and sins. 
And what he means by transgressions and sins is the idea to transgress, it's like the old King James Version. It says trespasses. We know exactly what that means. To trespass is to make a very conscious, obvious decision to go someplace you're not supposed to go. What he's saying in the word trespass or transgression is that these people have rebelled actively against the authority of God in their lives. But the word that he uses for sin means to miss the mark. He says, even if you can't bring yourself to believe that you are truly intentionally rebellious against God, you still have to admit the fact that you have failed. You have missed the mark. You haven't shot cleanly where you were supposed to go. Our translators here have tried to help us understand Paul's very Hebrew way of thinking because literally when he says, um, in which you used to live, these transgressions and sins in which you used to live, what he's saying literally is these transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. This is a very Jewish idea of understanding life in the world, and the idea of walking is very important throughout Scripture. And if we were actually able to understand it completely in its ancient context, we, we would be reminded, literally life could not happen without walking. Even as in many places in our world today, everything that you have to do to stay alive and survive is done by walking. What Paul is talking about here, and in fact, he bookends our passage by talking about walking, is the idea that this is an entire enterprise. It's an entire life. It's an active movement toward a particular goal. In this case, Paul is saying the entire enterprise of your life has amounted to nothing more than a death march. But it's more than just rebellion and failure. And Paul here actually identifies a trifecta of bondage and death that is stated elsewhere in Scripture quite succinctly as the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to look at all three of these, and basically, just a heads up, I'm going to probably offend everyone sitting here because these categories are not really that fun. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to, we're going to take them in the order that he has them here. And the first is the world. And the world here is not referring to people groups. It's not referring to the physical planet or the universe, but rather the philosophical, economic, and physical systems that make up human life on earth. Paul is essentially saying that the systems of empire, the systems by which people gain power over other people, are essentially dehumanizing systems. So I think if you're a good Portlander, this is probably the easiest one to swallow. I I feel like the people of Portland have a pretty good tab on a lot of these types of ideas. We can look around, right? We know as Portlanders, factory farms, bad. Corporate greed, sex trafficking, all of these sorts of institutionalized things, these systems by which people and things are exploited, we can look at and say, yeah, there's evil there. But if you've grown up around conservative evangelicalism, I think this might be the one that's a little bit harder to take. We're really comfortable with the idea of personal responsibility. And though we're going to talk about that in a moment, I I don't want you to rush past what Paul is saying here when he talks about these dehumanizing systems, the age of the world. And I I think it's important, especially if you've been raised in, in the church where personal responsibility seems almost natural and easy at this point, to really take a look around because it might sting a little bit. We might actually realize, if we're honest, that we have flirted a bit too much with these systems, failing to address the oppression of the poor, failing to care for the resources of the earth. And what Paul wants us to see is that systemic evil is a real thing. And it's something that all of us have been enslaved to. 
Systemic evil enslaves everyone. It enslaves the actual worker, the person who's being dehumanized in their work. It enslaves the person who thinks that if they just have one more nice sweater, one more set of clothes, one newer car, it enslaves the person selling them and making all sorts of money off off the inhumane labor of other people. It's a completely enslaving system, and we have to be willing to open our eyes to see it, that these systems are all about us, and very often we fail to recognize them. So there's one. Now I've offended a good half of you. Whether you're a Portlander, though, or, or more of a conservative evangelical type, uh, this one's coming right for both of you, okay? When Paul talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is work in what he calls the children of disobedience, he's talking about Satan. And for enlightened 21st century people, this seems like the stuff of fairy tales. I mean, even within the church, haven't we grown past believing in monsters hidden under beds? And isn't this just one more example of how archaic the Bible really is? I mean, obviously ancient people saw spirits behind every rock and breeze, but we know better now, don't we? Well, I would suggest that such intellectual snobbery is held onto often only at great cost. How advanced have we gotten ourselves really? When you consider the amount of psychological issues that have arisen in modern Western world, the suicide rates that continue to climb. It's one thing to say that this is not necessarily a spiritual problem, but I don't think that it's gotten us much farther. I don't think that we've gotten much progress by seeing all spirits as nothing more than psychological breakdown. So for Paul and for other scriptural writers, a personal devil was nothing to gloss over and nothing to laugh at. And it wasn't because he was just a dum-dum from back in the day who didn't know better. It's a real being, this devil, that rules over human life in ways that we don't even realize. That's why I included that quote from The Usual Suspects when Verbal Kent is talking to that police officer and he tells him, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The third element of this trifecta is, is one I think that probably folks on the more progressive end are going to have a harder time with. Whereas I've already said, those of you that have kind of grown up in more conservative churches will feel right at home, and that is wrestling with the flesh. Now, Paul here is not talking about physical desires. He's not saying that the need for sex, food, or sleep is wrong. That's not a wrong thing. But he is saying that we've misused those things, and he's saying that there is something internal to each of us that is deeply, deeply broken, and there is a self-centeredness that causes us to walk in rebellion toward God because we want to be the king of our own lives. And it's not just Gentiles. This is where Paul switches into including everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. Everyone has been enslaved by their own rebellion. This is a grim situation indeed. And I would ask you to consider, if one of these things that Paul identifies as evil, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, if one or two of those seem like too fanciful for you to believe, you've got to at least be willing to admit that he's probably put his finger on one of them. And if that one's true, maybe he's right about the other ones as well. And I think what we'll realize is that suddenly there's no such thing as neutral Our own passions, our own desires are so broken off, so rebellious, that given the chance, we will cheat, steal, or kill our way to the top. The world itself is set up in a way to enslave all of us, whether we're the ones in a sweatshop actually enslaved 
or the ones buying the clothes or making the money off the labor of others. We have all been enslaved by a system that devours itself voraciously. Economic and social injustice dehumanize victims and perpetrators alike. And even in moments when we feel like our desires are our own to control, that our destiny is our own to manage, we are met with a stone wall. But even beyond impersonal systems of evil designed to enslave us, there is a personal, powerful being bent on our destruction, bent on dragging us down into death. And he's doing such a good job of it that we're laughing all the way. And we don't even recognize him as being real. As if all of this were not enough, Paul tells us that because of this enslavement, because of this devil duping us into death, because of our own rebellion, sitting as the king on the throne of our own hearts, we are deserving of wrath. And here's where I I really might lose some of you because wrath just really doesn't sell well. And to be perfectly honest, it's no wonder that it doesn't sell well because there are a lot of theologians and a lot of pastors who have really muddied the waters by casting God in their own angry image. And it's tough to parse out. When Scripture talks about God's wrath, it's not just an impersonal force that's burning out there, waiting for people to inevitably pass through it like a furnace. And nor is it something that flares up when God has a really bad day at work. See, we all have this tension swimming around in our brains, and so we come home, and maybe we've had a horrible day at the office or whatever it is, and the kids do one little thing to get under our skin, and we get mad at them, right? Our wrath comes out. But we know that our wrath is for very much more complex reasons than what the kid just did, but so often we cast God in our own image. That's not what's in view here. God's wrath is not an emotional explosion that he reaches this limit where he's just had enough, I'm so sick of the way these people are. No, God's wrath is his hostility toward evil. His hostility toward evil. You have to understand that God is relational, so his wrath doesn't just exist out there in a vacuum. It's a response. It's a response to evil, and it's an unwillingness to compromise with evil. We could say it this way, that God is the surgeon and evil is the cancer, and what St. Paul is telling us is that we are all just swimming in cancer, that it's in the air that we breathe, it's coursing through our veins, it's in our bones, and the king of cancer himself is feeding it to us by the spoonful. And as difficult as the idea of wrath is, all of us believe that cancer isn't something you can compromise with. It's not something you want just a little bit of. You want to cut all of it out, blast it out, obliterate it. Now, so far in our passage Paul hasn't even gotten to a subject and a verb. This has been one long run-on sentence without even a main verb or a subject. And it's just been writing it in such a way that we would just be left standing with our mouths wide open at the death in which we find ourselves, the punishment that we deserve. And then finally, he gets to a subject and a verb, and he says, but God... But God acts. God intervenes. But God goes about a grace-filled salvation that is so overwhelming that Paul can barely even get it out. You were dead. No hope. Not even a glimmer of light. Just darkness and silence of graves. But God made you alive. And this passage is very, very interesting because in the rest of Paul's theology that we still have written down for us, he almost always talks about salvation in some sort of future tense. 
He has some things that are present, some things that are past, but almost every time he talks about it, he has something that's still waiting out there in the future, this ultimate salvation that will arrive at the judgment day. But not in this passage. Here in this passage, Paul gives us one of the most incredible descriptions of what salvation is. The gospel story at the very pinprick center of it is Jesus dying and rising again. And, and Paul doesn't, in this passage, make explicit that we were joined with Christ in his death because he's already told us that we were dead already. But he says that when God resurrected Jesus from the dead, he resurrected us too. When God seated Jesus in the heavenly realms, he sat us too. This is not hyperbole, and it's not a literary device that Paul is using to try to get us to understand how similar God's power in us is to the power that he worked in Jesus. No, this is literally actually real. It's perfect tense. It's already happened. God has so united us with Christ that when his resurrection happened, our resurrection happened. When his session, his seating, his finalization, his realization, the culmination and vindication of everything that he was about happened, there in the presence of the triune God, we were seated, realized, vindicated. It's already happened. Can you imagine such a reversal? The boot of the world was on our necks, and the bullet of sin was already in our heads. Satan was holding a smoking gun, and we were dead in rebellion against God, and yet he made us alive when he resurrected Christ from the dead. Why would he do that? What would compel him to do that? There is nothing in our history as individuals or as a human race that would suggest that we're ever going to get it, that we're ever going to start doing better. Why would he do it? Because he's rich in mercy. He's got storehouses full of it. And it's not just this thing that's impersonal and sitting there. No, mercy is directed right at you and right at me. Because of his great love for us, that's why he did it. We have been rescued by grace, made alive, and set above those earthly powers that held us in captivity and death, and it's only because he loves us. We deserve to be obliterated, and instead he came and died in our place, and with power and mystery as ancient as time itself, he has made us alive. Why? Because he loves us. What Paul is telling each of us here is that you have been rescued by grace through faith, and none of it, not the rescuing, not the believing, none of it is from you. It is only God's gift. You have done nothing to bring it about. It's just God's love, his great love with which he has loved us. Paul asks, the Ephesians, to look around and see the salvation that has already been wrought in their lives. And then he asks us to look ahead. He says that God does all of this because he loves us, but he does it for a purpose. Because in the coming ages, which, which often can mean the, the age to come, the eschaton, when, when all things are wrapped up, and God is finally all and in all, but here Paul is actually using it in a different sense, almost like an ocean tide where the waves just keep crashing and crashing and crashing on the beach from now until eternity and all the way through eternity. 
throughout the rest of time, God is simply putting on display a grace so rich, a kindness so deep that it cannot be compared to. Indeed, it it cannot even be described or told in any other way than in him actually working this into our lives, him actually rescuing us, making us alive, and seating us in the heavenly realm in Jesus. That is the only way that the story can even be told. So how does this display happen? How does the story get told? It's told in us. If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have been made alive with him, Paul is saying, you've already been saved. You've already been resurrected and seated in the heavenly realms, and now you are God's handiwork. And just as God can command Ezekiel to tell those dry bones to come up and have breath and flesh on them, that is the picture of what God has done with you and with me. You are his handiwork. You're his own creation made by his hands in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works. You see, we are now situated in the new creation, the remaking of all things that is taking place in Christ. And like a fruit tree that has been made absolutely, undeniably, completely alive, the easiest thing in the world to do, the only thing in the world to do is to bear fruit. It's not yours. It's not works. It's not somehow making you more friends with God. He has created you. He has made you alive. And he has done it for this very purpose so that through you, he can grow fruit out into the world. God has purposed this beforehand, that we should be in Christ. And in so being, that we should not simply do these good works And again, our translators have kind of glossed this over, but what Paul says is that we should walk in them. It's a complete reversal. We used to walk in rebellion and death, and now we are walking in life and in love and as new creation, working the love of God into the soil of our communities and of our world. And it's in our working that we are being put on display. We are are trophies, displays of his grace, and of the greatness of his love for us. As I said toward the beginning of this service, that that Paul bookends this passage with talking about a walk and how we used to be walking in one direction, but because God has made us alive with Christ, we are now walking in another direction. And what he tells us is that all of it, the entire journey from beginning to end, is nothing but grace. And yet it is a journey. And it requires us to get up and walk. And that's why, as we do every week, we're going to come to this table where we find food for our journey. Would you pray along with me? God, your grace is astounding. Even even reading this passage and and asking for our eyes to be enlightened, it is still just such a dim flicker to really believe that our lives were so marked by death and decay, and yet to know that you have already made us alive. I ask that we would be put on display, that we would be markers on the road of life to your grace, to your mercy, that we would be simply reflectors of your love, reflecting your light out into your world. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we